Welcome to the Criminal Satirist. This is your host, Nicole Janine. Hello and welcome back to the Criminal Satirist. This is your host, Nicole Janine. In today, episode 9, I will be talking about the Indian Student Placement Program that was developed by the Mormon Church and was in use from 1947 until the mid-1990s, and the civil lawsuit that was brought against the church for sexual abuse. So during the time of the program, missionaries and other members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would approach Native American families and invite their children to live in Mormon foster homes. The children would live with their Mormon families throughout the school year and would be able to attend these majority white populated public schools rather than the Indian boarding schools or local schools on the reservation with the guise that they would have better education and better cultural opportunities than non-Indian community life, according to the church within these homes. Approximately 50,000 children participated in the program. According to the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, the objective of the program was to provide laminate children with educational, spiritual, social, and cultural opportunities that would contribute to their leadership development. So for those like myself that are not completely sure what a laminate is, the Latter-day Saints LDS Church teaches that Native Americans are descendants of the Lamanites, a group of people who, according to the Book of Mormon, left Israel in about 600 BC and settled in the Americas. In the Book of Mormon, the Lamanites are seen as basically like a wicked people cursed by God with a skin of blackness as part of their punishment for turning against God. And basically, the rehabilitation of the Lamanites is seen as a sign of the second coming of Christ. The LDS Church believed it was their responsibility for leading Native Americans toward a more righteous path, which meant there were strict requirements to participate in the program. The LDS Church asked that Native American children abandon their surroundings and assimilate to the way its Mormon church members lived. So my takeaway is lamina does not seem to take on a positive connotation. The idea that darker skin tones are looked down upon and it sounds like the children are ordered to get a better shot at education or any other kind of opportunity. They would have to forgo their own Native American culture and join the Mormon culture. The amended complaint, and I will say this, the real names are not used for any of the plaintiffs to protect their privacy as they were children of sexual abuse. And I will say for the purposes of this podcast, I will not be naming the alleged perpetrators as they were never charged or convicted. The plaintiffs in this case are RJ, who is now an adult male, and MM, both members of the Navajo Nation and live within the boundaries of the Navajo Nation. At the time of the offense, both were minors. Both victims alleged that they were taken from their home and placed with foster families in Utah. The defendant is named as Corporation of the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which at the time of the offense operated church meeting houses within the Navajo Nation, also being charged as Latter-day Saints Family Services, which is a nonprofit corporation that is operated by the LDS Church, and in this case acted as an agent for the church. From approximately 1947 to the mid-1990s, LDS Family Services operated a program called the Indian Placement Program, also known as Laminate Placement Program. So back in 1946, the president of the church, George Albert Smith, appointed Spencer W. Kimball to be in charge of the Laminate Committee with the goal of seeing that the gospel was carried 
out to all the children of Lehi, which includes the Lamanites, all over the world. Kimball is alleged to believe that the Lamanites were idle, savage, and bloodthirsty individuals that had hardened their hearts and were cursed by God with a skin of blackness. It was the church's desire to convert Native Americans or Lamanite children and then assimilate them into the church's culture to reflect the teaching found in the Book of Mormon. It was the church's goal to teach the Lamanites within the Navajo Nation about their true ancestry and convert them back to the one true faith and immerse them into the Mormon culture. And it was felt to be a divine direct way to redeem and restore the Lamanites to their prophesied destiny. It was believed by, by some that the children that converted skin would get lighter. I hate the fact that like certain religions basically feel like they got to convert you to make you make more sense to them. You know, like this is the only way it really kills me. And the fact that we have to take in consideration the skin tone of Native American Indians because their brown skin is not accepted. Court documents stated that it was believed that in order to qualify for the program, the child had to be at least eight years of age and baptized members of the Mormon church and in good standing. They do not quantify what good standing is, so I'm guessing like they had good moral characters, didn't get into trouble. Caseworkers from LDS Family Services would decide what children to move from their parents, and then they would be transported to Utah to reside with Mormon families during the school year. It is believed that the Mormon families received stipends for keeping the children and were promised unspecified spiritual blessing. I have no idea what that means, but okay. In approximately August of 1978, RJ was 10 years of age and was removed from his home in Sawmill, Arizona, and placed with a family in Oak City, Utah for his fourth grade year. During this time, he was sexually abused by his stepbrother that was four years older. He alleges that he also suffered emotional, physical, and cultural abuse from the foster mother to include being forced to have his mouth washed out with soap whenever he spoke Navajo to the other placement children in the home. RJ reported that he did tell about his abuse to this couple that had been LDS missionaries on the Navajo Nation previously, where he had been baptized. And after the Christmas break, he was taken out of the home and placed with this missionary couple for the remainder of the school year. During the summer, he returned to his own family. Then the next school year, he was placed with a different family and was again sexually molested at least once by an older foster brother. And he again disclosed the abuse to a caseworker whom is believed to have worked for LDS Social Services. And he disclosed this at least twice. By seventh grade, RJ was removed from his family home on the Navajo Nation and placed with another Mormon family in Utah and was again sexually abused. His sister was also placed with the same family and RJ witnessed the sister being sexually abused as well. He again reports to the same caseworker that he disclosed to before about what was going on in the home, but nothing happened. And the following year, when he was in eighth grade, he was placed back in the same home. During his eighth grade year, RJ reported that he was not abused. However, he did witness his sister being sexually abused again. Also, he witnessed another younger sister that had been placed in the home being abused or inappropriately sexually touched. Arde stayed with this family going on into the ninth grade year and was not abused, but would continue to witness his sister being abused. And I would say at this point, this boy has to be 
completely traumatized. He keeps getting moved around and his living situation is not improving. He is telling people what's going on and nothing is being done. And now he has to witness his sisters being abused. And I will say this. The complaint does not go into the boy's family or the dynamics of the family because it's not supposed to. This complaint is just about the victim and the perpetrator. So it is unclear as to like whether he told the, his family or anything like that and if they knew about it and what their whole stance was. So I don't bring it up. It's not an issue at this point. And I can only hope that their only intention was to do right by their kids and not put them in harm's way. And they just were trying to be like, you know, parents and try to, to do their best. Plaintiff M.M., whom is R.J.'s sister back in 1976, when she was approximately 11 years of age, was baptized a member of the LDS Church in order to participate in the program. She was removed from her home in Salt Mill, Arizona, and moved to Gunnison, Utah during her time in the home. She was raped by a family friend whom was a friend of a stepbrother, allegedly. This individual was a frequent visitor. During the summer, she returned to our family, and then her sixth grade year, she did not return back to the previous home, but continued with the program until 10th grade without further incidents. Then when she gets to 11th and 12th grade, she was placed with one of the same families that RJ had been placed with in Utah. MM was abused by the foster father that included multiple incidents of fondling and being made to masturbate him, allegedly. And at this point, she becomes aware that her brother and sister whom are living at the home are also being abused. I'll just say this. The reason the church was probably sued civilly for personal injury, well, for obvious reasons for the sexual abuse that occurred, but also for the negligence that occurred from family services, whom I would guess even though the church has their own exemptions, they would still be required to act as mandatory reporters for when abuse is reported to them, and they did not. So law enforcement was never notified, and it's unclear what the caseworkers did or who they spoke to after the incidents were reported to them. As in the case with RJ, they removed him from the home once he reported the abuse. However, it's troubling that the abuse happened in every home that he went to. The court document states that the parents were not notified by the agency either. So the victim's initial request was to ask for monetary compensation for their pain and suffering, which is just in my opinion. They also asked that the defendants change their current corporate policies regarding reporting of suspected child sexual abuse because at the current time or the last updated 2010 policy that is found in their handbook, it basically says states to avoid implicating the church in legal matters to which it's not a party. Church leaders should avoid testifying in civil or criminal cases or other proceedings involving abuse. So now the victims want every church leader to be required to be a mandatory reporter of child abuse instead of not cooperating with a potential investigation. So because these people have never been reported and brought to court, they're allowed to walk around free and potentially perpetrate on other victims. This is why I don't say the family names, even though they are stated in the court documents due to the fact that they have never been formally charged or prosecuted for these crimes. Believe me, I don't feel any civility to them, and I hope their names were thrown around in the mud in their communities at a minimum. But honestly, like, if this story is what the victim is saying, I doubt anything was really 
done and nobody really cared because so many families were involved. It's the church's initial hopes of assimilating these children whom they potentially see as less than because of their skin color and cultural beliefs. And they are telling the kids and parents that they are giving them a better education but instead inflicted years of abuse and harm on them. The defendants were also requested to send letters of an apology to the plaintiffs where they take responsibility for the abuse as well as a letter of apology to the Navajo Nation Museum in Window Rock, Arizona for harms caused to the people and culture of the program and to have a task force to work with the Navajo Nation government enhancing and restoring Navajo culture. The final outcome is basically both parties came to an agreement and settled. Whatever money the victims got or didn't get for the settlement was not allowed to be made public, and the victims agreed to dismiss their case, and there is no omission of wrongdoing by the church or family services, according to Craig Vernon, an attorney who represented the parties in the case. So I'd be curious if there were any policy changes or letters of apologies written since they don't admit to wrongdoing. I would be curious to see what the actual outcome of this settlement does for the future. I feel like this has to be said because I feel like we live in a society that likes to victim blame to a certain extent and ask why the victims didn't come forward earlier. Well, in this case, the victim, at least RJ, reports coming forward multiple times and nothing was done or reported. Another question that's probably asked is, why did they file civilly and not file criminal charges? Most of the perpetrators may be dead by this time, and there is also a statute of limitations that has already expired for them to have the ability to file criminal charges. And also, it is the point to hold the church responsible since they were the ones backing the program. And also, there's a segment of the population that believe that the victim should have said nothing and left it alone due to the amount of time passed. And to those people, I feel like you can't tell people how to respond or when to respond after you have wronged them. Everyone processes grief and pain differently. And from the victim's standpoint, from the allegations that RJ gives, it sounds like survival. He reported it and the ball was completely dropped. I'm not sure what more he could have done because he was the victim and he's a child. And then double it down, he has to then witness the abuse of his siblings. So it's like if he says something, do they all get taken out? Do they all get removed? Does he just get removed? And then his sisters remain and then the abuse continues. I mean, I can't even imagine like what he has to go through internally. And besides the physical abuse, there's emotional and mental damage being done. And further, the statute of limitations for Utah For certain sex crimes that are forcible, there is an eight-year statute of limitation. Only applies if the victim reports the crime to law enforcement within four years after its occurrence. Otherwise, the statute of limitation is four years. So he only had four years. The sister only had four years to report it. They did report it, but it didn't get reported to law enforcement. And so the time has passed. Four years is not a lot of time. Um, because the offense did not occur on the reservation, the tribe could not prosecute the case at the time that it occurred. And if it had occurred on the reservation, from my understanding from the readings, 
they cannot prosecute against a non-native. Let's also not forget to mention sex abuse assault cases are hard to prosecute because of lack of physical evidence, such as in this case. Also, many prosecutors do not find children as great witnesses to bring to the stand. It's literally a child's word against not just the Mormon family they are placed with that is doing the abuse with, but literally a whole church organization that was complacent and allowed it to go on, allegedly. One would like to be optimistic and hopefully now that the program has ended, so has the abuse, allegedly. While it must have been painful and hard for the victims to go forward, with this, I'm glad they were able to share the story. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for taking time to listen to the story. If anyone is familiar with this program as a participant, whether it is a negative or even a positive story, I would love to know your version of what it was like living with the Mormon families and you know how that had affected you overall. Please reach out to me via email at thecriminalsatirist at gmail.com. And otherwise, be safe. And if you see something, say something. Thank you for taking the time to listen to The Criminal Satirist. I would love if you would subscribe to the show and don't forget to tell your friends and family. You can follow me on Twitter at Crime Satirist and you can also email with comments and questions to thecriminalsatirist at gmail.com. Great reviews are also welcome. This is your host, Nicole Janine. Until we talk again, stay safe. And if you see something, Please say something.